The book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Again, that's the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. And the page number for this passage is 1,283 in the Bibles that are found under your pews. Book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. It reads, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as, the, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Good morning. So keep your Bibles open to that passage. That's what we're going to be talking about here this morning. And uh, it's an honor to be able to preach while pastor is away, and we're praying for him that uh, he'll be refreshed, he and Bonnie, as they're away. Let me just pray before I begin. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would open up our minds to understand this passage better. And not just that, Lord, that it would affect our hearts in such a way that we would be motivated to do the things that it tells us to do, that we would be stirred up, that we would leave this place desiring not only to hear what it says, but to do it as well. I pray in Jesus' name, through your Holy Spirit, amen. So what we have here this morning, you might say is a motivational speech in a way. It's an encouraging passage, it's an uplifting one. It's, it's one that kind of uh, refreshes you as you read it. And it's always tough when you jump in the middle of a book of the Bible because you haven't read everything that comes before it. And we are very much jumping in here into Hebrews chapter 10 this morning, missing out on everything else that the author has said. The author, by the way, is unknown. We don't know who it is. Some people think it's Paul. Somebody think it's some, some, some people think it's someone else. We, we don't really know. But that's not really important. What, what matters here is the message and no matter who the author is, we know that it's inspired by God and profitable for us and perfect in every way. What we have here is the ending of a letter. Hebrews, like so many of the other books of the New Testament, are letters, or it is a letter. And, uh, and in this letter, he's ex exhorting people to, to do certain things. He's giving them a body of knowledge and then saying, therefore, based on what I have said, uh, you should do X, Y, and Z. And so here you'll see there is an exhortation for us in three different ways, and we're going to talk about that this morning and unpack that. You think about um, movies or books, there's often a motivational speech in any kind of inspirational movie, right? Stories often follow a predictable formula, and we were talking about this a little bit in our teacher training class this morning, where you have a character or main characters who start out in the beginning, maybe they're hopeful, maybe they're looking to see the world, whatever it is. And then at some point in that story, after you're introduced to them sufficiently, they're uh, introduced to a conflict, a problem, something that comes up that interrupts their goals or what they're trying to achieve. And then throughout that story, maybe in some uh, tellings of it, there might be a mentor who comes along 
and helps that person. They might experience an initial defeat once they're introduced to this problem, but then that mentor comes along and encourages them, gives them the knowledge or the tools or the skills that they need to be able to achieve victory in the end. And so that's the standard you know, timeline that most stories use. And you can think of many movies that follow that same storyline. And in that kind of time frame, that storyline in a movie or a book, there's often a motivational speech that's given by the mentor that gives that main character some new knowledge. He, he says, look, um, this is what you need to do. Either he gives him that kind of skill or he tells him something he didn't know before or he tells him what he already knew and reframes it in, in a different way so as to motivate him to action. And here, that's exactly what we've got before us. This author of Hebrews is saying, in light of everything that we've just said, God is calling you and I as Christians to do certain things. He's saying, the time is short. Okay? It said in the end of that passage that Pastor Cruz just read that the day is drawing near. Right, That's the end of verse 25. And in light of that fact, there are certain things that we should be devoting ourselves to to a greater degree than anything else in this life. Because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, that makes it possible for us to do certain things. And he's going to highlight for us what those things are for us to do. So my exhortation to you this morning is whatever stage of life you are in, whether you are young or old, whether you are married or single, male or female, whatever the case may be, God has this passage for you. This is designed for you. This is for you to hear this morning. It's something that God wants you to devote your life to. And these things that he's going to outline are things that we should be immediately putting into practice. He's going to say, let us do these things. Let us go forward and, and what well, we'll see. We'll see as we explore it a little bit. But here's the main idea. This is what I want you to get out of this whole message. Because of the hope that we have in the work of Jesus Christ, God is calling us to give the Christian life everything that we've got. Let me say that again. Because of the hope that we have in the work of Jesus Christ, God is calling us to give the Christian life everything that we've got. In other words, seize the day, right? Which is my title, you see there in the bulletin. But not seize the day in the sense that the world normally understands that, right? When you hear people say seize the day, usually it means, okay, put everything you have into achieving your goals, right? Do everything that you can to become a better person, to live out whatever dream you have for your life, double down on that, no, that's not what God is saying here. When he says seize the day, he's saying it in a very specific way. Seize the day for the things that matter. Seize the day in light of eternity. And in that sense, I hope that as we leave here today, we're all going to take a look at what it is that we're devoting our lives to. If you were to break down your hours of each day and the things that you most love, the things that you most care about, do they align with eternity? Do they fit with what is ultimately coming for each and every one of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ? And if not, hopefully that drives you to a little bit of further introspection. Today we're called to seize the day. Now, we're going to see three specific ways that God is calling us to action. Three ways we should seize the day. And let me just outline them for you and then we'll break them down in greater detail. Number one, we are to draw near to our Creator. Look at verse 22, okay? And you're going to see these all highlighted for you by the words, let us. Let us. Let us, okay? I'm, I'm trying to eat a little healthier this week. I don't know what prompted me to do that. Maybe that's why I spotted this. There's a lot of let us in here, okay? 
let us, it's a, I've used this joke before. I don't know how many times I can do that in a sermon. It's at least twice, okay? So, but it still works, all right? A lot of let us here, okay? So three of them, that's how you know these are the commands. And before that, before we even get to verse 22, 19 through 21, he is saying, therefore, since, right? You'll see that twice. Since this is true, and since this other thing is true, therefore, let us do these three things, okay? So you have two reasons why we should be doing what we're doing, and three explanations as to what those are, signified by let us. So if you don't mind marking up your Bibles, if you like to do that, highlight since, since, draw a line, says those are the reasons, and then the let us are the three things we should do, okay? Um, So the first one, let us draw near to our Creator. Number two, found in verse 23, we are to hold fast to the confession of our hope. And number three, We are to intentionally build one another up in the faith, verse 24. And there's many other things that are said here, but ultimately they all serve to fulfill that outline right there, those three things that we are supposed to be doing. So this message is not just for um, a limited group of us, as I said. It's applying to every single one of us today. So all of us should have reason to sit up, pay attention, and see what God has to say to us this morning. Why should we give ourselves to these things? Well, it's not because of any rousing motivational speech that I might give, okay? In a typical motivational speech that you see in a movie, it's because of the eloquence of the speaker. They just say the right words, okay? It's not that. That's not why God is going to tell you, you should do these three things. Rather, the reason that we should follow and be motivated and be excited about all this is because of what comes before those commands, the verses 19 through 21 stuff, since these things are true. It's not based on some fancy speech. It's because of historical realities of what Jesus has already done. So number one, first reason, we now have access to God the Father. That's verse 19, since that is true. Okay, since we have access to God the Father. And reason number two, we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who has interceded for us. Both of those realities should lead us to the three things that we should do, signified by those words, let us do this. Okay. So, let's go to the text, right? Now that we understand the outline of it all, where it's all leading, let's go there. That's where the power lies. Um, keep your Bibles open, of course, as we go through these verses together. Verses 19 through 21 the senses, and then verses 22 through 25, those are the commands. Let's start with the sense part, the the reasons, okay? Reason number one is found in verses 19 through 20. He says, therefore, brothers, pointing back to everything that he said before, therefore, in light of all this, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, um, Okay, there, there's the first reason. Um, we, we're obviously jumping in the middle of the text, as I already said. We're in chapter 10. There's a lot of things that this unnamed writer has already gone over. But just to summarize, the entire book of Hebrews is about the superiority of Christ. He is superior to all previous forms of revelation. If you were to just look in chapter 1, he is superior to the Old Testament sacrificial system. He's superior to Moses, Melchizedek. He mentions all these different people. And ultimately, he's the great high priest. And, and he goes to great lengths to prove that throughout this entire book. And again, I don't have time to go over all of that. But um, <clears throat> here, the author is referencing the fact that Jesus is superior to the Old Testament sacrificial system 
that he has down, now done away with. Um, that, that tabernacle, the temple, the separation that existed between God and man. Verse 19 very much ties in with our call to worship verse, which we read at the beginning of the service. So look back to your bulletin. It says in Hebrews 4.16, let us then, I'm reading from the ESV here, with confidence draw near, or with boldness, you could say, to the throne of grace that we, we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Now we can boldly enter the presence of God, talk to him, worship him in a way that wasn't previously possible because of the work of Jesus. So when it says in chapter 10, verse 19 now in our text that we have confidence to enter the holy places, here's where it's helpful if you have like maybe an NIV in front of you this morning or a different translation, because I think the NIV rightly translates that as the holiest place or the most holy place. It's not talking about multiple places here, but it's talking really about the holy of holies, that holiest place that was the centerpiece of the tabernacle or the temple, okay? When it says the holy places here in the ESV, I think it might be referring to those two sections, the holy place and the most, most holy place, but if you, if you haven't seen one before, you have to Google it sometime. I trust a lot of you have seen in Sunday school classes or otherwise maybe in a study Bible what the tabernacle looked like. When Moses was around and leading the children of Israel, there was this massive tent, this rectangular structure that surrounded this courtyard where only priests could enter and offer sacrifices during the year. And then inside that was a smaller tent leading to the most holy place and then a, a curtain that separated an even holier spot called the, the Holy of Holies or also called the most holy place. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant resided. That's where that box was that contained the, the, the Ten Commandments and Aaron's staff and, um, and the jar of manna. It was thought of as the place where God dwelt with his people, where God's presence was truly manifested. And that lid of the Ark of the Covenant that was in the most holy place was called the mercy seat. That's where these sacrifices year after year were, were made on the Day of Atonement. So God's presence is very much associated with this holy place that's talked about in verse 19 when it says we have confidence to enter the holy places or the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Only the holy priest, the high priest, could enter the holy of holies in the Old Testament and then only once a year on the day of atonement. Uh, if anybody else entered the room, they would die. And for this reason, God's presence is viewed as holy, as something you don't just walk right up to. Nobody could just st stroll right into the, the temple or the tabernacle and walk into the most holy place. You would die immediately. Okay? God's holiness is not something to be messed with. And the idea is that mankind is so evil that he cannot dwell even close to the presence of God. Habakkuk 1.13 says God's eyes are, quote, too pure to look on evil. That applies to all of us in this room, okay? Just so we can get real about what this means. Every single one of us, all of humanity, are unworthy to enter into that holy place, into God's presence. But Jesus Christ changed all of that. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. And, and Pastor Reed talked about this last week, how our sinfulness was placed on him and his righteous status was given to us. So that his works, his perfection, was accounted to us so that by his works 
we would be viewed as holy in God's sight. So when Jesus died, it was no accident that while a lot of different things happened in Jerusalem, one of which was that the temple curtain was torn in two. And that curtain that's referenced there in Luke is this very curtain that divided the holy place from the most holy place, opening it up very dramatically in a visual way, signifying to us that we can now enter into the presence of God. So in our passage... That is what it means when it says Jesus has now opened up a new and living way through the curtain or the veil that is his flesh. This is, this is scandalous to an ancient reader to hear. You have to kind of transport your, your minds back into that time to, to hear what this would have sounded like to a first century Jew. To say that we could come boldly into God's presence, just as if we were to confidently march into the Holy of Holies in Moses' time, would have sounded crazy, absolutely crazy to a first century Jew. To say that you just walk in, be an ordinary person, not be dressed any certain way, not have any kind of status as a high priest, they're saying, you kidding me? Who can do that? Blasphemy, they would say. Would have been insane. But that's no longer the case. That is what is amazing. Through Jesus, we can now come to God at any time, not through a priest or even a pastor, but directly. Directly. You and I can pray directly to the creator of the stars. And that just blows my mind. The one who created our very souls and our bodies invites us to draw near to him because of everything Jesus has done. So that's the first reality. Second reality, second reason that he gives here is found in verse 21. He says, and since, there's that word again, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Okay? Again, you really need to read all of Hebrews, specifically chapter 2 through 10, pretty much the whole thing, um, to get the full force of this. Because he's just summarizing it in one sentence, saying, since we have a high priest over the house of God. Boy, there's a lot in that statement. There's a lot that he's just unpacked from you know, all those chapters before. So you know, reading it really helps. But, but if I should summarize it for you, this is what he's saying. Jesus is superior to all other high priests that have gone before him because, number one, he has not only gone through the veil of the tabernacle, but through the very heavens. That's in chapter 4, verse 14. He was tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin. That makes him different than any other high priest in the past. He was sinless. That's chapter 4, verse 15. He does not need to offer a sacrifice for himself like other high priests. So other high priests, they could come in and offer, offer sacrifices for the people, but they also needed to offer sacrifices for themselves because they themselves were sinful. He doesn't need to do that. That's chapter 7, verse 27. And he offers an eternal sacrifice that covers all of our sin. That's chapter 9. There's many other reasons I could get into, but those are just some. And, and I want to show you something really neat about this passage. It says that Jesus is a great high priest over the house of God. Okay? That phrase, house of God, is very interesting. Um, I did a search in the Bible and, and found that in the 78 times that that is used, that phrase exactly that way, house of God, um, both in the Old and New Testament, in every case it refers to the temple or the tabernacle. All of those occurrences, except here. Except in the book of Hebrews. And there's a way in which those words are flipped where it says God's house, same idea in chapter 4 of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is 
starting something new here. In all the other 70-some uh, you know, occurrences of that phrase, house of God, before it referred just to the tabernacle or temple. Here he's saying, you know what, now we are to understand this in a whole new way. Jesus is a high priest, not just of a building, not just of curtains, but of a people. We are the house of God. Okay? And uh, here's some, oh, here you go. Here's some Greek that you can actually relate to a little bit. I could just normally throw out Greek words and wouldn't really mean a whole lot to you. But the word here for, uh, for house is oikos. Okay, any, any yogurt lovers out there? Okay, this is, a, this is my health kick, all right? Got some lettuce, got some yogurt, all right? Danin oikos, all right? Anybody see that before? Greek yogurt, I don't know. The, the Greek yogurt people came in and kicked out all the other yogurt and you can't find it anywhere. It's just, it's taken over. I don't know what happened there, but... There it is. You can go out and find it. Oikos is the name of a yogurt, and the word means house, okay? Or, in this case, family. It could be referring to either a building, right? Like we see here, okay, oikos being described here in the Bible as the tabernacle temple, a physical building. Or, it can also be used in other contexts as a family, a household, right? And that, that usage is found throughout different Greek writers and speakers and everything in history. But here's where the New Testament makes that turn. From going to a building to a household, a family. Okay? And he's saying here, this author is saying that Jesus is the high priest of us. We are that family, that household of faith. And that, that fits very well with other things that we'll see worded differently in other books, but, but still the same concept. Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And of course, there's, there's one even more famous, 1 Corinthians 6.19, where we're told that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? So we very much are that temple. We are that body. That's the new understanding of that, the spiritual understanding of Jesus being the high priest of this house of God, meaning all of us. So tying it all back together, we have two reasons here, two great realities that can really only be understood in the sense when you transport yourself back to first century Judaism to realize just the significance of what all this means. Jesus has now opened up this way for us to have direct access to the Father, which was unheard of in times past. And Jesus is now our greater high priest. He's not a sinful, corrupt high priest. He's not somebody who is sinful himself that needs to be offering sacrifices for himself. He is a perfect one that has been tempted in every single way as, as we have yet was without sin. He has made a perfect sacrifice that doesn't have to be made over and over and over again like the Israelites experienced for those reasons. Now, the author says, we are to do certain things. We are to seize the day. Because all of that is true in our lives, we are to push forward. No matter how beat up we are, right, this morning. I don't, I don't know where any of you are coming from this morning. Okay? I understand that when people gather on a Sunday morning, you may have been at, at the greatest point uh, in your entire year this year. You might be on top of the world. You might have had just like a victory after, you know, somebody gave you a million dollars, you picked up another million on the street, you won the, you know, and somebody, uh, you know, gave you a trophy, and then you won all of your soccer and baseball and basketball games, and, you know what I mean, your long-lost cousin came to town, and it was a great reunion, and everything, like, everything could have gone wonderful for you, okay? Your lost dog came home, and... Uh, 
I wouldn't have used a dog illustration in the past. Now we own a dog, and that's worked its way into my sermon somehow. I don't know. Um, so I mean, everything could have been going well for you, right? Some of you may be in that situation. Some of you might be in the, the exact you know, opposite. You're, you're saying, I didn't really want to be here, Pastor Dave. I, I just know I'm supposed to. Maybe your parents made you come here if you're younger. Maybe you're here, and, and you're an adult, and you still were thinking, I don't know. But I've got a lot of other things on my mind. Maybe you didn't sleep well. Maybe you're dealing with an illness that's been ongoing. Maybe there's a lot of emotional things rolling around in your head. Maybe you're feeling beat up just about a coworker or a friend or a spouse or a child or anything. If you're coming here weary, I want to say God is still calling you to focus on these realities and to take the strength that you've got and call on him for more to seize the day to do everything that we are called to do here. What does he call us to do? First commandment is to draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. First question we might ask is to draw near to who, right? It just says draw near. Well, I think from everything we've explained, you can see that it's God, draw near to God. If you have an NIV, you'll see it supplies it. It's not there in the original, but they, they put that there to help us understand, draw near to God. And I think that's correct. Fits very well with all that we've said already, because we have, quote, confidence to enter the holy places by the, new, by the blood of Jesus, in verse 19. In other words, because we don't have to fear God now or have somebody go in for us, like a pastor or a priest, the, the exhortation is, let us draw near to God right away. Right? Let us be in his presence. Let's communicate with him in all the ways that he's given us to do. He's given us his word. And I know you've heard this a million times, but it's so true. Right? We have the very words of God printed for us. Right? And yet, why is it that late at night when I'm tired that I would much rather turn on Netflix and see what's available to watch? Right? Like, I could either communicate with the God of the universe or I could see the latest season of what I like. It's, it makes no sense, right? It's, it's, it's crazy when you think about it, yet I'm subject to those same kinds of uh, crazy thoughts. We're to draw near. And sometimes that could even just mean, you know, being still before God and, and praying. Kendra was talking to me beforehand about just saying, oh, it's a shame she was singing a song called Still, and here I have this title, Seize the Day, you know, and everything as if it's some actionable thing. Sometimes that action might just very well be being still. When we talk about drawing near to God, right, that in and of itself is an action. It's an action and it takes effort because it's not what we normally do on our own in our flesh, right? What we normally want to do is just do something else. Whatever it is that we find amusement in or just makes us feel better, it takes discipline to sit down and read the scriptures to pray, to actually trust in God. That doesn't come naturally. So that is very much an actionable item in and of itself and fits very well with this command here to draw near. The basic idea here is that we have this access that was un unheard of in the time of Moses, in the time of the prophets. We come here and can talk to God. We can worship him standing up, looking boldly, confidently, praising his name. And we should not lose sight of what a gift that is. The days are short, it says. The day is drawing near. Don't neglect it. 
Don't neglect the opportunity that you have to talk to the living God, the creator of the stars through prayer, and to hear what he has said to you. Use the time well. Be still. Trust him. The second exhortation that we're given is in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. All right, so we are commanded to, to what? To hold fast. Hold fast to this confession of our hope. Or again, uh, the, the NIV is just killing it this week. I love it. Uh, it says the hope we profess is the way the NIV says it. Okay, so you could either say the confession of our hope or the hope we profess. In other words, don't lose sight of that. Hold on to it. Hold on to it tightly. Why would he use a verb that means so strongly, like grip it, grip it like you're, you're hanging on off of a cliff and you don't want to let that thing go? Because I think as we can see in so many other passages of scripture, it's easy for us to stray from our doctrine, for one thing. There's so many false teachers and even books that would masquerade as decent, you know, wise teaching, but might lead us astray in certain ways. We have to hold fast to what it is we believe. He's saying the day is short, right? There isn't much time. Make sure you are holding fast to that confession. And, and we've done that already this morning. We sang that song, This I Believe. Now, I have to tell you, I plan these songs like months in advance, the praise band one. So there's never really any intentionality about fitting it with one particular week to another. But God sometimes just works things out. And when I picked this passage, which wasn't based on that, I thought, you know, that fits really well. That's a confession of our hope. And we're to cling to that. Not that we have to sing that song per se, but we have to hold on to what it is we believe. Remember what it is we believe. Be sharp in what it is we believe. In our theology, you might even say. But not just that. Not just some doctrine is what's in view here, but also the hope that's behind that doctrine, because it's saying the confession of our hope. In other words, the confession that is summarized in our hope, or that points us to our hope. In other words, doctrine by itself isn't meant to just be something that's, that's dry and stale and just a bunch of facts and theology and things like that. It's supposed to point us towards something. And trust me, I love theology. I love all the stuff that I got to eat up in college and Bibles, Bible college and seminary and all that stuff. But ultimately what it's to drive us towards is that hope of eternal life. That hope of eternal life. We sang, I believe in life eternal. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the saints' communion and in the holy church. I believe in the resurrection when Jesus comes again. Those are the things that we hold on to. As we hold fast to our doctrine, he's saying, hold on to hope. As you see the world fall apart, and I don't know, if, you know how many of you are discouraged by news and things that you see all around you, if you just get discouraged by your own sin or by others, maybe you've been betrayed before, maybe a host of things have happened to you. It can be really easy to get discouraged in life. He's saying the antidote to that is to hold on to this hope. Hold on to the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again and that everything that you confess ultimately points forward to that. Because as it says earlier in Hebrews, he's going to come again, but not to deal with sin, but to bring back all those who are with him to eternal life. It's a focal point of our hope. Jesus' resurrection, his coming again. Um, again, as we sang blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, right? That, that kind of hope is what we hold on to. That's what brings us comfort day by day. 
It's an active task, just as I said about the first thing. We need to continually remind ourselves of this. You're saying, Pastor Dave, these aren't actions. Like when you said seize the day, I thought you were going to say go out there and, you know, volunteer in a homeless shelter or go out there and build a house or do anything. And all those things are wonderful, right? You should do those things. But the active things he's pointing us to in this particular passage for today are still active, even though they don't seem like some of those examples. They're active because still to hold on to hope requires us training our minds, right? And if you don't believe me, just think of how many times we say negative things during the day, how many times we might complain about something, right? That's a sign of us not holding on to hope. That's a sign of the the negative things discouraging us and getting us down and driving out those thoughts of what's to come or what our ultimate goal in life should be about being a witness, being a light to others, okay? It doesn't seem like an active thing, but trust me, it is. Holding on to this hope, pointing forward to that, getting that in the front of our minds is very much something that we need to work at. So we found already that our first exhortation here, going back in my notes here, was to draw near, draw near. The second one was to hold on to this confession of hope. And then finally, verses 24 and 25, our last two verses, It says this, let us stir one another up to love and good works. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I was watching a YouTube video this week on how to make pizza, I don't know why. These are, they're all food illustrations this week. I don't know why. We've got Fellowship Sunday right afterwards, okay? So if I made you hungry, it's okay. I had another steak illustration. I cut that out, so it's all right. All right, so how to make pizza, all right? And it showed you how to make the dough. And this was just one of those things that was so satisfying to watch because they were showing the person kneading the dough, and at first they had to take the sugar water and add the yeast to it, and, and it had to bloom a little bit. And then after they mixed that in with the flour and everything they needed, it would just pop right up. It looked so neat. You know? But when they added the yeast to the, the warm, sugary water, you saw it bloom a little bit. You saw it ferment. You saw these little bubbles start to, to happen. And it said, if that doesn't happen, you've you got to throw that out and then try again. Get some new yeast, perhaps. It says we're to stir one another up. You've got to stir that in when you want that reaction to take place. And then you start to see the bubbles. You start to see something happening there. We need to stir one another up. Us just being here doesn't necessarily fulfill this command because we could very much be here and be not stirred up, right? We could just be very much attending here and being passive. But it's saying we should go further than that. Stir one another up to love and good works. Love and good works. Means, first of all, we need to actually be present together in some form or fashion, right? I said it can't just be that, but it has to start with that. And and understand, I am a big fan of technology. All of you you probably know that already about me. So I love the fact that we live in an era where I can, you know, we can post sermons online. You can can post it on video and on YouTube. And then if you miss a sermon, you can go home and watch it from the comfort of your own home. If you're out for a jog or if you're commuting from work to back, you you can listen to that same message on a podcast. I love that we live in that kind of era. Like that if you miss something, you can go and watch it later or listen to it later. But let me tell you, that will never replace being physically here. If you just go home and say, well, I've got, you know, the sermons in HD. 
Not that you'd want my face in HD, you don't, okay? Rather, it'd be all pixelated and stuff. Okay, well, just because I've got that doesn't mean that you can replace church with that. Even if you could have virtual reality in your room and have it, you know, full screen and you look around and feel like you're there, it's still never going to replace being here. Why? Because of this passage. We need to stir one another up to love and good works. So the reason we gather is not only just so that we can grow in our faith through the preaching of the word, which it is, but also, just as importantly, that we stir one another up. In other words, that we have an active part in this process. So I'm saying to you, and I'm going to be very bold here this morning, that if all you do is come here on a Sunday morning, sit in the pew, listen, and go home, you've missed the point. That's not what this verse is talking about, and you've missed it entirely. We are supposed to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And I need to ask you this morning, I do, are you doing that? Are are you stirring up one another to love and good deeds? Understand this could take place in a number of different ways, right? And it doesn't just have to be in a formal sense like, well, I'm on a, I need to be on a committee or something in the church. No, it can be as simple as just pulling somebody aside before you walk out these doors and say, hey, how are you doing? Like, I haven't caught up with you a while or I don't know you that well. I'd love to get to know you. Is there a way I can pray for you, right? Or is there a way I can help you? Or even when you go over to, to the, the fellowship meal after this service, to look around the room and say, you know, who is it that I, I haven't really gotten to know before? Who looks like they're kind of nervous, they don't really know who to sit with? Um, maybe I can invite them over to sit with me. You know, that's something you can do. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if we are neglecting this, then we are missing one of the key reasons to gather together at all. It can never be just an in-person version of you watching a YouTube video at home, right? Have you ever thought of that? If, if we come in here and do basically what we could do at home, then we've missed part of church, a big part of it. Okay? We are to use the gifts, the spiritual gifts, that God has given us to stir one another up, to build each other up in the faith, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to interact with one another, to do things for one another. Why? Because the day is approaching. The day is approaching. Encouraging one another. It says it very specifically. And this is going to take some creativity, by the way. Okay? If, you're, if you're sitting here thinking, well, Pastor Dave, I don't know how to do that. I see what you're saying. I see that that's important. I don't know if I've ever done that so much, or maybe I've fallen away from taking an active part here. I don't know how to do that. Brainstorm, right? The first word it says is let us consider. Right? It means you've got to think about it. it. It takes some thought to brainstorm to figure out how you might be able to do that. But I'd say if you take away nothing else from this message this morning... Think about that point today. Don't let yourself rest. God, I pray that people would be restless until they, they, they consider that. We need to stir one another up to love and good works. Time is short. Encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That day is drawing near, by the way. It's easy for us just to glaze our eyes to glaze over and not think that's real because... So many thousands of years have passed and Jesus hasn't come back and everything like that. We might say, yes, I believe that, but then in practice not live that way. But I need to tell you that Jesus is a day closer to coming than he was yesterday. Right? And you and I, all of us in this room, are a day closer to eternity than we were yesterday. We're not getting any younger. Right? So even if Jesus Christ doesn't come back in your lifetime, our time is still short. 
Brothers and sisters, we don't have much time left. God has put us here for a reason, specifically for some of the reasons that I've already mentioned this morning. And my question to you is, are you doing those things? Because we're not getting any more days than what we've already got. And tomorrow you'll have one less. So let's get to it. Seize the day. That's what I want to tell you. There is so much work for us to do. If you've fallen away from your devotional life, draw near to God. Read his word. Pray again. Take a prayer sheet from the narthex from this past Wednesday, if you like. Using it as a guide. Come to God as a child would come to his loving father. He is near to you. Jesus has opened up the way. Hold fast to that confession of your hope. Know what you believe. And read the book of Revelation if you're starting to lose hope, right? Pastor's preaching on it in the evening. You've got a wonderful opportunity there as well. Read it. Remind yourself of what's coming. And consider how you might be able to stir one another up to love and good deeds. The day of his return is coming soon. So let us do all these things and more as we see that day drawing near. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray this morning that you would awaken our hearts to see what it is that you've had us to do from the very beginning of time and what we should be doing with the days that you've given to us. God, I pray that you would help us in all of these ways to draw near to you, to stir one another up to love and good works and to hold on to that confession of our hope. God, help us to actively work on those things no matter what stage we're at, whether we're young and haven't given much thought to the life to come at all, or maybe if we're older and feeling weary, God, give us that strength we need to be able to do these very things that you're calling us to do, and all the more as we see that day drawing near. May the day drawing near not cause us to be um, passive and just sitting back and waiting for it, but God, to use every ounce of our strength to do what you're calling us to do. And together, God, as a body, May we glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.